to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Just want to thank all of you for all the well wishes and cards and food and presents that uh, you've been sending us. Our, our new baby is uh, doing well and um, uh, sleep is optional. Just keep telling myself that. I figured out with four kids, what having four kids means is that there's always somebody somewhere in the house crying, is what it means. It's my new life paradigm. So anyway, but we're doing good. I got six hours of sleep last night. I feel like a new man. It's great. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Well, this morning in uh, our study through Isaiah, we come to Isaiah chapter 6, which is, I think arguably, the greatest chapter in the whole book of Isaiah, if not one of the greatest chapters in all of the Old Testament. I know every time I open a passage, I say, Oh, this is a great passage. They all are. But this one is really, really great. And it's a critical passage because it's the passage in which Isaiah is commissioned as a prophet. This is the passage in which God uh, puts his uh, uh, hand upon Isaiah and says, you are going to speak for me. And so for that reason, it's a critical, significant passage. And what happens in this passage shapes Isaiah's message throughout the rest of the book. In fact, all of the themes of Isaiah are, uh, in a sense, pregnant within this chapter. They're all here. And you can find them sort of tucked away in this text. But I think it's also an important chapter, not only because it's Isaiah's commissioning to be a prophet, but but it's an important chapter because of the great, clear, grand vision of God that we receive here. This is such an awesome picture of who our God is and what He is like. It's such an awesome picture. I, I think of Isaiah 6, it's kind of like the scenic overlooks when you're driving in the mountains. I don't know if you've ever been you know, up on the Kankamagas Highway in New Hampshire or somewhere up in the mountains, somewhere driving along and you're, you're going up this windy road, it's going up and up and there's trees and trees and all of a sudden there's a scenic overlook. And uh, so you pull your car over to the side and you step out and you look out and there's, you, know, you have this huge vista. There's mountains and you realize how, how much elevation you've gained in the last half hour of driving. And you're just like, wow, look at that. You can't believe how awesome it is. And I feel like that's Isaiah 6. You're driving along in life, you know, doing your thing, and then you, you, you pull over in Isaiah 6 and you get out and you just look at how great God is. And you stop and, and, and pause and look at the vistas of His glory and His majesty. 
And so Isaiah 6 is a great chapter. You know, whenever you just get lost in the, the thick and, and the details of life, you need to pull over and pull out Isaiah 6 and just take a fresh look at who God is. And that's what Isaiah 6 gives us. I think even more than anything else, even more than commissioning Isaiah, it's a great vision of God's greatness. And so uh, I had planned to spend one Sunday preaching on this text. That's probably not going to happen. So we're probably going to be here for a little while. We're probably going to be in Isaiah 6 for a couple of weeks. I, I just can't rush through this. We're going to pull the car over. We're going to get out. We're going to take pictures. We're going to look at the scenic overlook here because to do otherwise I think would be an injustice to this text. So today I'm just going to preach on the first verse. It's, it's a great verse. Look at Isaiah 6.1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, which was 740 B.C., that's when Uzziah died. In fact, if you want to take out your sermon notes real quick, which is this insert in your bulletin, you'll see there's a timeline on the front page. In the upper left is the kings of Judah, and there's Uzziah. He reigned from 792 to 740 B.C. So uh, this is 740. That's when Isaiah has this prophecy. That would be 2,744 years ago. Uh, He has this prophecy. He he has a vision of God. Now what's interesting about this text is that he dates his prophecy in the year that King Uzziah died. And the reason that's interesting is that he doesn't do that anywhere else in his book. Uh, Isaiah doesn't date his prophecies. He doesn't have some system where he keeps tab of when all the prophecies happen. Most of them just happen. And every once in a while, he gives some historic context for the prophecy. But I think this is the only one where he actually puts a date on it, like in this specific year that King Uzziah died, which raises kind of a question. Why did he date this prophecy? Why did he say in the year that King Uzziah died? It's kind of a curious thing. Um, some have said, well, it's because this is the year he was commissioned as a prophet, and so it was an important uh, uh, you know, year. Uh, you know, Matt and Grace will always remember April 18, 2004. It was an important day for them, and maybe that was it. Maybe it's he was commissioned, and so he decided to affix a date to it. And, and that could be part of it. But I think there's something else going on. It's not just a personal reason for Isaiah. It's a historic reason, because the, the, the death of Uzziah, the king of Judah marked a massive shift in the history of Judah. It was the end of one era, the beginning of another. The end of one period of Judah's history, the beginning of a new chapter. The old era was one of prosperity and peace and success. And now Judah was going to enter into a period of uncertainty and upheaval and warfare and danger. And as Uzziah died, it was sort of the chapter that marked the, the, the page where that chapter was turned and they begin a new story for Judah. And so it was in that year that Uzziah, uh, Isaiah has this vision. Uzziah, Isaiah, they get them easily mixed up here. So uh, maybe this would help. Maybe we should study a little bit about who Uzziah was. And when you see who this king was and see what it meant then that he died, I think you might understand more about this prophecy. So um, find something, a bookmark, something, a little piece of paper, stick it in Isaiah 6, and I want you to turn over to Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 448. 
Second Chronicles 26, page 448. First and Second Chronicles uh, are part of the historical books of the Old Testament. They tell the history of the kings of Judah. This is kind of a historical account of who the kings were and what they did and what their, their uh, ministry was like. So Second Chronicles 26, page 448. And here's Uzziah, king of Judah. It says, Then all the people of Judah... Second Chronicles 26.1 Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was, one, he was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. Yeah, you think teenagers can't even drive when they're 16 here. Uh, he, he became uh, 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. Now, stop right there. Can you imagine the legacy of a king who ruled a nation for 52 years? I was trying to think, if if we had a president in our country for 52 years, the longest we had was FDR, right? American history is a little rusty. I think 16 years, he had four terms. And uh, think of the impact he had. His great society programs through the Depression. I mean, the way that he handled the Depression and structured American society has continued to have profound impact on the way our society is structured today. And that was just 16 years. And in fact, we realized how dominant that was, that we passed the the constitutional amendment limiting presidential terms to, to, I think it's two terms or 10 years or or whatever. But but they said, all right, look, you know, this this is a lot of power, and so we want to limit it. That was 16 years. Could you imagine if we had a president for 52 years? 52 years. What kind of thumbprint that would put upon a society? That would mean there would be like two generations that would grow up only knowing one guy leading the country. It would be profound. Or I was thinking about it, if there was a, a guy who started a business and led it for 52 years. A guy started a company and 52 years, he was the man. You know, I, again, I was searching for parallels. Uh, Bill Gates, I was like, how long has he been at Microsoft? And I went on the internet and found out he started Microsoft in about 1975 with Paul Allen, they wrote uh, BASIC, the basic computer language, and that was kind of the beginning of Microsoft. But that was, uh, so 75, that's 29 years ago. So, you know, think if Bill Gates stepped down today. I'd be like, oh, you know, Bill Gates, what, how can life go on without Bill Gates? What would it do to Microsoft's stock? Now imagine if he was there 52 years and stepped down. The impact. Or think if there was a pastor who led a church for 52 years. Uh, some of you remember uh, the great uh, Dr. Harold John Ockengay at Park Street. And he was one of the great pastors and preachers of, of the last century right here in Boston. And what a, a profound impact he had on that church and the way his legacy continues to ripple in, in that congregation. And he was the pastor there for 33 years. Imagine if he'd been there another 20 and, and then stepped down instead of 1969, 1989. I mean, it's just been amazing impact. 52 years that's how long this king reigns. But not only did he just reign a long time, but he was a good king. Good in every sense. He was morally good. Look at verse 4. It says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. So this was a good guy. He really followed the Lord. He was a role model of what it meant to follow God and be obedient to His commandments. Uh, he wasn't perfect. We find out at the end of his life he kind of got cocky. He had a lot of success. Went to his head. He stepped over the line. Got punished a little bit for it. But overall, 
you know, you look at his whole reign and you say, this was a good king. Did you imagine having a guy on the throne for 52 years who you could point your kids to and say, son, you need to be like King Uzziah? I mean, we can't imagine that because we live in such an age of political skepticism. It doesn't matter who you are as a politician, people hold you in suspicion. But imagine in those days having someone who you could say, this guy does what is right in the eyes of the Lord for 52 years. But not only was he morally good, he also was a, a, a military leader. Look at verse 6. He went to war against the Philistines, broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashad. He then rebuilt towns near Ashad and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbaal Ger and against the Munites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt for he had become very powerful. Now take out your uh, sermon notes again. Look on the back. I photocopied a little map here from the Macmillan Bible Atlas. Here's a picture of Palestine. Look at... Um, you see Judah there? Or it says Judah. It's about halfway down, right in the middle. Uh, Judah, that's about where Judah's territory was before Uzziah. But under Uzziah's military campaigns, you'll see that this big thing spread down at the bottom. He went over into the Philistines to the west. He pushed southwest, south and southeast and expanded the territories. What's significant about this is that Judah had not had these territorial boundaries since the time of King Solomon about 150 years earlier or something like that. So this was like a big return to the golden days, back when King Solomon was the great king. And then, you know, Judah kind of declined. And then Uzziah brought us back to the golden days. He was a great military leader. And he, he pushed back all these people and gave victory. Um, now, you also notice something else. You see on this map, you see those kind of like uh, thin lines running up through the map? Those aren't rivers. Those are trade routes. Those are the major trade routes in that day. So any trade coming from Egypt up through Israel over to Assyria in the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent or any trade coming up through the Persian Gulf up into Arabia that would land in Elath, all that trade passed on these trade routes and it was now underneath his control. So he could tax it, he could control it, he could take advantage of it. So his military success was coupled with economic success. And if you, uh, you can read more about that in verse 10 of Second Chronicles. Go back to Second Chronicles. It says, He built towers in the desert and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. So he also developed the country economically. He built the uh, infrastructure necessary for economic growth, which in those days was wells and towers. Uh, you know, today it's internet and, you know, networks and things like that. In those days, infrastructure was wells and towers. You dug a well so you could raise sheep and, and uh, irrigate. You would build these towers to guard the sheeps at night. And it just made the whole place safe so people could expand their flocks and they could expand their gardens, not have to worry about bandits and raiders and things like that. So, uh, you know, all right, now take all this together. Go back to Isaiah 6. You see who this king was? This was one of the greatest kings since King Solomon. He was awesome. He was amazing. 52 years, morally upright, militarily he conquered, foreign policy, domestic policy. This guy had the whole package. He was a great king. And in 740 B.C., he dies. Hey, what would it be like to live in those days? You'd be like, ah, King Uzziah is dead. What are we going to do? How can life go on without King Uzziah? 
I've never known any other king but King Uzziah. Well, what's going to happen? Now, on top of that, even as King Uzziah was dying, there was another king who was rising. But it wasn't a king of Judah. It was a king of Assyria. Look back at your, um, your uh, sermon notes one more time. And, and there, there's a point to this history lesson. We'll get to it. So don't, I'm not just going into... This isn't the history channel here. We're, we're going to get to a sermon. But if you look at the bottom, look at the Assyrian kings. You'll notice that on the left there's a period of Assyrian weakness. It ended in 745 B.C. with uh, the, the ascension of Tiglath-Pileser III. Um, now, why his parents would name him that? And why two other people would be named that, and they would think it was important to name their... Oh, Tiglath-Pileser, that's a great name for a king. We'll make him the third. I, I don't understand. Or his nickname, Paul. I mean, it's not much better. So, but, of course, if you said these things to him, he'd kill you. So people just put up with his name. Uh, so here's this, this silly king, silly name, but powerful king. And immediately upon ascension to the throne, he began consolidating power around him. And it was like every year he conquered somebody new. It was kind of like conquer somebody new every year. He had aggressive corporate takeover strategy. He conquered the Babylon, the Chaldeans in the south. Then he started moving. And he started moving up. You can sort of see the Fertile Crescent here. Moving up over and heading down toward Palestine. So the year King Uzziah dies is also the same time there's this like monster growing in the, in the east. Gobble, 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 gobble. Gobbling city after city and people after people. So now, okay, now imagine we're just a bunch of Judeans. And here we are, we're farming our land, and Uzziah dies, and we're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to our future? You know, what, what, if there was a stock market in those days, what would be happening to the stock market? You know, today, anything happens. You know, a CEO you know, sneezes, and the stock market goes like, you know, like this. It's, it's so sensitive to everything that's going on. Imagine if Uzziah died. And imagine if Assyria is on the rise and you go, what are we going to do? What about, who's going to take over? Well, he has his son Jotham, but you know, we don't really know how he's going to be as a king. He hasn't really been tried and tested by himself. So I don't know what's going to happen. There's all this uncertainty, turmoil, fear, insecurity. It seems like the wheels are coming off the bus or the chariot. And in that year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's when Isaiah saw the Lord. That's when God revealed Himself to Isaiah and Isaiah saw the Lord. The Sovereign. It was in that year when everything was falling apart, when the great Uzziah died and the terrible Tiglath-Pileser was on the rise. That's when Isaiah saw the Lord. Lord, When everything was falling apart around them and everything was up in the air, I saw the Lord. In times of upheaval and uncertainty, when there's grief, loss, things are falling apart before us, our greatest need, our greatest need is a fresh vision of the greatness of our God. And that's what Isaiah got. And uh, look, at, look at verse 1. Let's look at the vision with him. Let's, let's see the vision through his eyes. He wrote it down for us so we could see it too. He says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Now that, of course, obviously what that means, it means He's the King. He's not just a King, though. He's the King. He's the King. He's the King who doesn't die and who doesn't get overthrown or assassinated. This is the King. Uzziah dies. Tiglath-Pileser, he comes and goes. After him comes Nebuchadnezzar the Great. 
After him comes Cyrus of the Persians, who's conquered by Alexander the Great of the Greeks, Julius Caesar of the Romans, Charlemagne, Napoleon, Stalin, Saddam, who knows, some other great kings. And all these earthly kings, they come and they go. Their thrones are established and overthrown. But this king is on his throne and nothing shakes him. I saw the Lord. He's on a throne. He's a ruler. He's a sovereign. And notice where the throne is. High and exalted. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And what this means, that His throne is up in the air, it's high, means that, that He is the ruler over the whole earth. That He, he doesn't uh, rule some other country somewhere on planet earth and this is His little territory and that's Uzziah's little territory and that's Tiglath-Pileser. No, no, He's over them all. He's high and exalted. In fact, we see it down in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. He's reigning over the whole earth. You know, this, this made me think of Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, put your bookmark back in. Let's go to Isaiah 40 real quick. Isaiah 40. Arguably one of the greatest chapters in the book of Isaiah. And I don't know how we're going to preach this one in one week either. Oh, this is going to take a while. Isaiah 40. We'll give you a little sneak preview. Isaiah 40, verse 21. Isaiah 40:21 Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Here's the picture. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent. He brings princes to naught reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, then He blows on them. And they wither. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. That is our God. All these kings and rulers and Uzziah, what are we going to do? Assyria, here they come. What's happening? And it's like, no, 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 no. Look, all the kings of the earth, they're like blades of grass. Here we are, lawn season, right? We're all getting in touch with grass again. And I had to have my lawn thatched and fertilized. I'm starting to mow it again. And, you know, so I'm in touch with grass again. And, you know, the grass pops up and the grass dies. The grass pops up and you mow it down. The grass pops up and the grubs eat it and it dies. You know, this is, and for some reason I'm just obsessed with keeping this grass. I don't know why we're all into this grass, but I'm mowing it and, and taking care of it. And this is, and God says, this is what kings are to me. This is what the most powerful men in the world are. They're just like blades of grass. You know, if I want to, I make one come up, boop. Then I go, and it's done. And I bring another one up, boop. And then when I'm tired of that one, it's gone. This is grass. God's like, I'm the great king. The world is just like grasshoppers to me. In the sense that God is so much greater than all of the world. And so Isaiah sees this king. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted in the train of his robe, Fills temple. This is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. That's what this verse is all about. God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, let me give you a definition of God's sovereignty. When I say that God is sovereign, that means that He rules over everything, everywhere, 
all the time. That's the definition of God's sovereignty. God rules over everything, everywhere, all the time. God rules over everything, everywhere, all the time. He is the King. And nothing takes place in this world apart from His will. Even the bad things? Yeah. Do I understand that? Nope. But He's sovereign. Even horrible things that take place in this world at the hands of wicked men. God doesn't make wicked people be wicked, but He's sovereign over it and He's somehow working it according to His plan. You know, even the death of Christ was at the hands of, of, the, of the leaders in that day and they freely went and killed Jesus. But it tells us in the book of Acts, they did what His sovereign plan determined beforehand should happen. God is in charge of everything. There's nothing that's happening in this world, in this life, that's surprising Him. He is in charge of it all. It's not like God's over here looking at this guy's life and something goes bad in your life and suddenly God goes, Oh my goodness, oh, I, no, I was paying attention over here. I'm sorry, I wasn't watching. Oh, let me get on top of that. Oh, there's something else. You know, God's not running around putting out brush fires. He's ruling over everything. And all of these great kings who are coming and going and we're like wringing our hands saying, What's happening to the world? The world has gone totally crazy. And then we see the Lord seated on His throne high and exalted, and He is in charge of it all, and He's reigning and ruling in His totally absolute, absolute sovereignty, and nothing less for our God. And I believe that in times of upheaval, fear, uncertainty, when things are falling apart in my life, your life, a country, the world, our greatest need is a fresh vision of the greatness and majesty of God. We need to lift up our eyes and see Him and put our trust in Him. Not Uzziah. He's dead. Not Tiglath-Pileser. Let's not go cut a deal with Assyria. Let's not put our trust in anything. Let's lift up our eyes and put our trust in the Lord. This is true in our personal lives. You know, we have all these things in our personal lives that give us order, you know, uh, structure, security, things like... Um, our health, obviously. Our health is one of those things. Relationships, uh, money, uh, houses, uh, towns. You know, you grow up in a certain town and you're just used to the layout of the town and where things are and you know the guy at the hardware store and you know the lady at the bank. And, you know, you just, you, these things are security for us. And churches, you know, we grow up in a church and it's a certain way and it's a certain security for us. And then something changes and we lose our health. And our husband of 30 years dies. And our, your dad gets relocated to Seattle. And you have to leave your town here and go out there. And you don't know anybody. And it's the middle of your junior year in high school. And you do get laid off. Or your car blows up and you have to have some weird uh, surgery. And you don't know where you're going to get the money for it. You know, this is the stuff that happens in life. And, and when all these things start to happen and, and your parents get divorced and... You know, all these stuff just happens in our lives and we start going, oh my goodness, where's God? God, I can't believe it. You don't love me anymore. Nothing's happening. Everything's going crazy. <laughs> you know, we start freaking out. And at those moments, we have to lift up our eyes and see that He is still on the throne, that He is sovereign over all things, that He rules over everything, everywhere, all the time, that that has not changed, that He is totally sovereign. Uh, in fact, I, I think that, that's our greatest need. You know, when you get diagnosed with a disease, you think your greatest need is a cure of that disease. And I will grant you, that's one of your highest needs. But it's not your greatest need. 
Your greatest need is to see the Lord and to put your trust in Him in a fresh way. In fact, think about it this way. If it's true that God is the King, and He is, and if it's true that He rules over everything everywhere all the time, and He does, that means that when bad things enter into my life, when I enter into suffering and upset, that means that God has allowed it to happen in some way. I don't, again, I don't understand the mysterious workings of His will, and I believe we're free to do our, make our decisions, but God rules over it somehow. I don't understand it. But it means that when something bad happens in my life, God has brought it into my life in an ultimate sense. He's behind it all. That even if, if a, a child were to die, I would know that it happened because God worked it into His plan for me. Which I can't even understand. He doesn't even like to say those words. But it's true. He's in charge of everything. So you have to ask yourself, okay, what does that mean? Well, I think that it means that suffering and trials for us then, part of their purpose is to test us and to sift us. In other words, whenever a trial comes into our life or suffering or loss, there's like a fork in the road, spiritually. And you have to decide which fork you're going to go down. One fork is the fork of unbelief, where we just become bitter and I can't stand God. And if there's a loving God, why'd this happen to me? And, you know, we just get focused on ourselves and our hurt and our wounds and our pain. And, and there's, you know, a place for feeling pain and all that. But we just get, that becomes our whole reality and we descend into unbelief. Or we can take the other fork in the road, which is to say, faith. God, I don't understand this. It hurts beyond imagination what's happening to me. I do not understand how this could fit in your plan. But in faith, I'm going to hold on to verses in the Bible like Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good of those who love Him. God, I believe that this thing in my life that's happening, if I trust You, is going to work for my ultimate good. It's not good, but it's going to work for my good. And so we have that crossroads we have to face. Will we trust God or not? And I believe our greatest need is to lift up our eyes and see that He's the King. It's true for churches, in times of uncertainty for churches. Uh, churches go through trials, and there's a fork in the road. What's going to happen when things go wrong in a church? When things kind of fall apart and there's problems? And one road is unbelief. And usually what that looks like in churches is churches kind of implode inward and they start going... And, you know, this side and that side and this team, and they all start fighting against each other, and it's your fault, it's your fault. You know, and, and it kind of, kind of implodes and degenerates. That's one way to handle things as a church. It's bad. There's another way to handle things as a church, and that's to lift up our eyes and get on our knees and say, God, we need you to do something great. I, you know, I, I kind of feel like that's what, what's happened through this whole Family Life Center project. You know, we're trying to do this building project. If you're new here in our church, we've been... Uh, trying to do a building project for like five years. It's frustrating as all get-outs uh, for me anyway. It's been a really frustrating process. We've seen some things move forward, but other things, there's like brick walls. We don't know how to get around them. And church keeps growing, and that's great, but it's like, well, what are we going to do? Where are we going to put people? We've had to go to three services. That's very taxing and tiring on everybody. So, you know, how, how are we going to handle this? And, and what it's done for me anyway, this whole process, is it's brought me to a place of just saying, whatever, God, you're in charge. It's your church. You're the one who's blessing it with growth. Thank you. It's wonderful. But you have to handle all this. And, and it's taken my eyes off the plan, the building plan, even though I still think it's a good plan. It's taken my eyes off that and put it on Christ and say, Christ, you are in charge. Lead your church. It's not about a plan or a project or a person. It's about Him. It's true for our nation. Here we are in an election cycle. And it's a time of uncertainty. Things are in Iraq. They're not going as great as they had been a couple months ago. We wonder what's going to happen. 
we have this whole thing in Massachusetts, this um, uh, constitutional amendment about the definition of marriage. And, you know, there's all these things, you know, and you can look at them and get freaked out and say, what's going on with our country? Is it falling apart? Is, is it all going wrong? And we have to step back, lift up our eyes and see the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and remember that God is, in fact, sovereign over America. Even though we're a democracy, He's still in charge of it all. And it's ultimately not a democracy. He's king over all the earth. And even if we take one step further back and look at the whole world, God is in charge of that too. Uh, I'm thinking here of missions, the global mission of the church. Christ has called the church to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And we look at that and we go, how can we do that? You know, the mission of South Shore Baptist Church is not just to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and become a bigger church and expand facilities and expand services. God has called us to make disciples of all nations. That's our job. And if there's a lot of people here, great. That means we've got to work on making disciples here. But it's supposed to go to the ends of the earth. So how, are we going to, how can this little church take the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth? I mean, it's crazy. Especially when there's countries like um, Sudan, where there's practically a genocide going on right now against Christians by, by the, the leadership there. Or countries like Saudi Arabia, where if you meet publicly as a Christian group, you could be executed. Now, how do you get the gospel into countries like that? How is the gospel going to go forward to the ends of the earth? And again, we have to lift up our eyes and see the Lord seated on His throne, high and exalted, and say, Jesus, You have sent us. Do you remember what the Great Commission is in Matthew 28? You know the Great Commission? Have you heard this? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Actually, that's not the Great Commission. Well, it's part of it. But that's not how it starts. How does the Great Commission actually start? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you can go and make disciples. It's because Jesus has all authority that we can go and preach His name to all nations. And we have to keep our eyes on the authority even more than on the going to all nations. That's where we get our strength. I'll, I'll close with this story. I, I read a really cool story um, in a book. Uh, that actually, you should all get this book. It's called uh, Cat and Dog Theology. It, if I could recommend everyone in the church to read this book this year, read this book. It's really cool, easy read. I'll put it here for you. But um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a story in it about some missionaries in Sierra Leone, West Africa. You probably know Sierra Leone's had civil wars recently and it's just a mess over there. Um, it's one of, one of the poorest, if not the poorest nation on the face of the earth. Uh, in constant upheaval, it seems, warfare. And there's a story about um, some guys who are showing the Jesus film. Maybe you've heard of the Jesus film. It's fil- not the Passion, but it's kind of like that. It's a film about Jesus' life. And it's used as an evangelistic tool for people who are maybe illiterate and don't have access to Bibles. And they show this film, and it tells the story of Jesus. Well, anyway, there's these, these guys sharing, showing the Jesus film, and they got news that some rebel soldiers, a rebel army, was coming into their area. So they, they quickly hid the film equipment and tried to leave, but four of them got captured. And when the rebel uh, army captured them, they basically enslaved these guys, these four guys. And they said, look, you're going to be our porters. You're going to carry stuff for us. You're our slaves. So they had to carry equipment for the rebel army. And to make sure these guys didn't run away, they took off their shoes. So they're just barefoot walking around. You can imagine carrying stuff day after day barefoot. Their feet got all cut and you know, bleeding and nasty and you know, eventually infected. And so you know, it's getting very hard to walk. And this one guy, it got so bad that he couldn't really do it anymore. And so he went to the rebel leader sort of pleading for mercy. And he's like, look, 
I can't walk anymore. I can't carry things. Look at my feet. And so they shot him. And, you know, okay, what are we doing? What's going on? And these three guys are left. It's like, where's God, you know? What are you doing, God? How could a loving God let this happen to us? And all this kind of stuff could go through your minds. Where is God? And the answer is, He's on the throne. You go, wait a minute, how could He be on the throne? He's letting this happen. Well, you've got to see the end of the story. Because eventually what happened was, the rebel leaders, some of the rebels found the Jesus film equipment. They said, what's this? You know, and they're like, well, that's our film. They're like, well, show it to us. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so they set it up and they showed the film and two guys, a couple guys get saved in the rebel army. And they become Christians. So they take it to the rebel leader and they're like, you know, you've got to see this film. And the rebel leader says, I want the whole army to see this film. So they're like, okay. So they, you know, they show the film. And all these guys become Christians. There's all these rebel army guys who start becoming Christians. And, and the need is so great that they make the three slave porter dudes become basically chaplains to the rebel army. And, and now, until, until the time they finally got released, they're discipling all these people who became Christians. And you look at it, like, that's so crazy. It's like, yeah, that's what God does. God does things that we can't imagine. He brings us to these break points in our life where they're at that crossroads. Will we trust Him for His glory and believe that He is going to glorify Himself or will we go the path of unbelief? And it's at those crossroads we have to choose faith and God will do something great for His glory on the other side. So I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what struggles you have. You know, I don't know if it's something horrible like, I don't know, having a new baby and getting no sleep and feeling like your mind is going crazy. You know, whatever it is, whether it's small little things in your life or you just feel like your life is kind of hectic or whether it's something huge, the answer is the same. Lift up our eyes. See the Lord on His throne, high and exalted. Let's pray, shall we? God, I pray that you would bless us by allowing us to see your greatness and your sovereignty and to trust it. I pray, Lord, that we might have the same experience Jonathan Edwards had when he came to that place in his life when he saw the truth of your absolute sovereignty as a sweet doctrine, as a beautiful doctrine, one that gave him strength for life. Lord, I pray for Matt and Grace Dorn as they embark now on full-time ministry, that as they hit the trials of ministry, as Satan will now try to sift them, oppose them, and shake them up, as they wrestle over raising support and, and, and all the different twists and turns in their journey, help them just to keep their eyes lifted up on the sender, you, God, that you are sovereign. And Lord, I pray for people here. I don't know, there's a lot of people here, some people I don't even know, and they probably have things going on in their life that are just huge, losses, grief hurts, questions, uncertainty. Lord, I pray, give them grace to lift up their eyes and see You on Your throne and to trust You because You rule over everything, everywhere, all the time. Lord, help us to see Your greatness and love You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Praise team, would you lead us in one final song? And we're just going to praise God for His greatness and majesty. And would you stand and let's sing this uh, great song together. sing together, get a vision together of our great God, our God of wonders.
After the service, our prayer team is here, uh, Pat and Vera and um, Tom. And you, would you guys come over here and just stand right up here next to me? If you want to pray after the service about anything, maybe something is going on in your life, you just want to put your eyes on God, just come on up after the service to one of these folks and say, Hi, my name is so-and-so, would you pray for whatever? And they'd be glad to pray with you. And uh, Matt, would you come and close the service in prayer? Thanks. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to get together and to hear from your word. 
We just ask you to help us go out into our world today, Lord, the Lord that you are sovereign over, and to uh, serve you, Lord, to love you, to be real with you, to just walk closely with you. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.